Hello and welcome to the podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things, this time for the Business Week ended 20th October 2023. This is Ian Haydock. Daiichi's huge ADC deal with Merck & Co. Mixed data for Ribrevant at ESMO. Pfizer girds for cost cuts. Myeloma helps J&J's Q3. And five key points from the cell and gene meeting on the Mesa. In another big endorsement of its proprietary R&D platform, Daiichi Sankyo announced a huge new global deal for three antibody drug conjugates, or ADC, candidates with Merck Co. worth $4 billion up front, including $3 billion immediately upon execution and up to $22 billion in total. The agreement is worth up to $16.5 billion in total contingent future sales milestones, with an additional refundable upfront payment of $1 billion to Daiichi for future R&D expenses. Lisa Takagi writes the agreement covers the Japanese firm's anti-HER3 ADC, Pachitumab, Derek's Tekan, anti-B7H3 ADC, Ifinatamab, Derek's Tekan, and CDH6 targeting ADC, Raludotatug, Derek's Tekan, which will be jointly developed and commercialised worldwide except in Japan, where Daiichi retains exclusive rights. Positive results from the Phase 2 Hathena Lung 01 study with Pachitumab for patients with EGFR-mutated, locally advanced or metastatic non-small cell lung cancer following disease progression with an EGFR-TKI and platinum-based chemotherapy were announced in September. The candidate was granted breakthrough therapy designation by the US FDA in December 2021 for the treatment of patients with EGFR-mutated locally advanced or metastatic NSCLC with disease progression on or after treatment with a third-generation TKI and platinum-based therapies. At present, a US BLA in this setting is planned by the end of March 2024 based on data from Herthina Lung 01. Finatamab is moving through the Phase 2 IG801 study, investigating it as a monotherapy for patients with previously treated extensive stage small cell lung cancer. Raludotatug, meanwhile, has been in a Phase 1 trial for advanced renal cell carcinoma and advanced ovarian cancer. The new collaboration with Merck will help us deliver on our obligation to deliver these potential new GXD ADCs to more patients as quickly as possible, Daiichi CEO Sanao Manabi said. Merck CEO Robert Davis said the deal would help the US-based firm augment and diversify our oncology pipeline while building on our immuno-oncology foundation. Daiichi signed its first big ADC deal with AstraZeneca back in 2019 for NHER2, which has since become a blockbuster for breast and other cancers. AstraZeneca's market-leading position in advanced non-small cell lung cancer with Tegriso is looking a little more assured following the early release of all late-breaking abstracts from the European Society for Medical Oncology or ESMO meeting in Madrid. Alex Shemmings writes the abstract for Johnson & Johnson's Phase 3 Mariposa trial, comparing its bispecific antibody targeting EGFR and MET, Ribrivant, 
plus its third-generation EGFR inhibitor, Lazotinib, licensed from Yuhan, against AstraZeneca's leading third-generation EGFR inhibitor, Degrisso, alone as a first-line treatment for patients with EGFR-mutated advanced NSCLC, showed a median progression-free survival of 23.7 months for the combination, versus 16.6 months for Degrisso alone. The PFS falls short of what was deemed necessary for Ribavant to put any major dent in Degrisso's defences, which were recently shored up by data from the FLORA2 study. This showed that Degrisso in combination with chemotherapy, permatrexed and either cisplatin or carboplatin, produced an impressive 38% reduction in the risk of progression versus Degrisso alone when used first line in the same setting. The combo extended median PFS by 9.5 months to 29.4 months versus Degrisso alone by Blinded Independent Central Review. At 23.7 months, the PFS result for Ribravant was at the lower end of expectations, said analysts at Jefferies in an 18th October reaction note. But so was Tegrisso's 16.6-month PFS performance, given the 19.9 months PFS seen in Flora 2. On the plus side for J&J was the favourable overall survival trend, which is likely to exceed expectations, and so the final balance will be in the tolerability profile of the Ribravant combination. More details should come on 23rd October when the full data will be presented. The Jefferies analysts concluded, in all, the mixed results likely pose some competitive threat to AstraZeneca's Tegrisso franchise, albeit less than perhaps feared. Pfizer delivered on a promise to investors to cut costs if sales of its two COVID-19 products, Kobianati and Paxlovid, remain below expectations in the second half of the year. The company announced a plan to cut $3.5 billion in costs and lowered 2023 revenue expectations for the two products by $9 billion in an announcement after market close on 13th October. Jessica Merrill writes that in a 16th October conference call, the company further detailed some of the changes to Wall Street, which include a plan to transition the sale of the oral antiviral Paxlovid to a commercial market in November. Pfizer already began the commercial transition for Comirnaty, the mRNA vaccine partnered with BioNTech, in September. The news did not come as a big surprise because this year was expected to be a transition for the big pharma as the pandemic phase of the COVID-19 outbreak ended and the market for vaccinations and treatments evolves into what will be a new normal level that has yet to be established. Despite plans to implement an enterprise-wide cost reduction programme, CEO Albert Bourla assured investors during the 16th October call that Pfizer will fully fund R&D and highlighted oncology as a key therapeutic area for investment. He said the plans do not change anything about Pfizer's planned $43 billion acquisition of CGEN and the cuts do not include the smaller firm. We will maintain one of the highest absolute numbers of R&D spend in the industry, he said. I don't think that we will have an issue with money. It's just that it's a very different story to be able to support a $70 billion revenue than a $60 billion revenue. Pfizer's revised financial outlook for 2023 calls for full-year revenues in the range of $58 to $61 billion versus prior guidance of $67 to $70 billion, 
with the change solely reflecting the sale of COVID products. Sales of the two products are expected to be approximately 12.5 billion versus prior expectations of 21.5 billion. In 2022, the two products propelled Pfizer's revenues to over $100 billion. The company's non-COVID products remain on track to achieve an expected 6-8% operational revenue growth year over year. Johnson & Johnson has several new multiple myeloma drugs that investors are closely tracking as the company looks to maintain its dominance in the therapeutic area and treat patients across the full spectrum of the disease. Management told the company's third quarter sales and earnings call on 17th October that three new multiple myeloma launches, Carvicti, Tecveli and Talvi, are gaining momentum. Jessica Merrill writes J&J's multiple myeloma portfolio is anchored by the mega-blockbuster Darzalex, a CD38-directed antibody first approved in 2015. But the three new launches are expected to drive the company's growth in oncology in the second part of the decade. Carvicti, a BCMA-directed cell therapy, was approved by the US FDA in February 2022, but manufacturing and administration complexities have limited uptake. Tecveli, approved in the US in October 2022, is a BCMA-directed bispecific antibody that can be administered subcutaneously, while Talvi was approved by the FDA in August as a first-in-class GPRC5D times CD3-targeted bispecific antibody. Carvicti demand has outstripped supply but picked up some steam in the third quarter, generating $152 million versus $55 million in the year-ago quarter. The launches of Tecveli and Talvi are exceeding early initial forecasts, CEO Joaquin Duato said during the call. However, the company did not break out sales of either drug yet. Finally, the Cell and Gene meeting on the Mesa concluded on 12th October, having brought together a variety of experts and executives from life sciences, venture capital and other sectors. Alec Jarman writes there were five key areas of takeaways from the California meeting. The first was on whether gene therapy's cost-effectiveness honeymoon could turn sour. It seems that almost every time a new gene therapy hits the market, the wholesale acquisition cost is more eye-popping. A recent example was Unicure CSL's Hemgenics for Haemophilia B at $3.5 million. But despite the sticker shock, on the whole, the therapies are considered cost-effective because they are for rare diseases and the prices are cheaper than the cost of treating a patient over the long term. But in the 10th October plenary session of the meeting, Precision Value and Health Senior VP Phil Sire suggested that could change in the near future. I think that what we are starting to see now, and it'll probably grow to a crescendo in a couple of years, is the concern about budget impact and the affordability, he said. And so, as we move more into more prevalent diseases, which we are going into, you'll start to see people not just looking at, is this cost effective, but can I afford it, and how much am I outlaying in the beginning? The second was whether regulators are likely to place greater scrutiny on mRNA products. In an 11th October panel on the role of mRNA in immuno-oncology, Replicate Bioscience Chief Development Officer Andy Gial suggested that such easygoing times could be coming to an end.
The level of scrutiny is now changed, he said. We'll see acceleration into the clinic and approval in those unmet needs where things can be tolerated, but we're going to see things slowing down dramatically. For example, he said, regulators will want to see huge swathes of safety data over extended periods of time for prophylactic vaccines, as they have always asked for traditional vaccines. The third is how CAR-Ts have smoothed the road for cell therapy market access. In April, Gamida Cell received US FDA approval for its first commercial product, Omia Surge, for blood cancer patients awaiting stem cell transplants designed to reduce the time to neutrophil recovery and lower infection incidence. In an 11th October panel on keeping the momentum going after a record-setting year for cell and gene therapies, Gamida CEO Abby Jenkins said that it was the pioneering work of prior companies winning approval and market access for cell therapies that made things possible for Omisage. The company had to do considerable work figuring out what kind of data it would need to generate, not only clinical trial data, but health economic data. You have to anticipate the payers may not appreciate the benefits of a curative therapy, that you need to generate the data in the expectation that they won't see that value, she said. It takes a village to create that data and begin working years before with payers to demonstrate that value proposition, she noted. The fourth was whether cell and gene therapies may see some impact from the IRA in the US. In a 10th October panel on dealmakers and breakers, Panelists noted that although much of the attention to the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act's provisions allowing the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to directly negotiate drug prices with manufacturers has focused on small molecule drugs, advanced therapeutics such as cell and gene therapies could see an impact as well. Charles River Laboratories International VP Matthew Hewitt noted that the IRA has many parts and there's so much that's unknown still. He agreed that most of the IRA's impact would likely fall on small molecules, which still represent a majority of the products that Medicare reimburses at high rates. But that does not necessarily mean large molecules will be immune, he added. It may affect the indications that companies ultimately decide to pursue, and it may change significantly the strategy around, say, BLA submission, because there will be a lot less incentive to do rare indications in that context, he said. So you may have a huge impact on approved products in rare indications. Fifthly and finally, keep an eye on geopolitics. There's no denying that the investment environment in biopharma has become tough, especially for private biotech companies. Macroeconomic factors like inflation and recession concerns have been cited as having downstream effects on the biopharma industry. During the cell and gene therapy investing panel, Morgan Stanley, Managing Director Valerie Dixon, recalled a conversation the week before with colleagues about situations that could make interest rates rise or fall, such as the war in Ukraine, adding that another major geopolitical event could have a similar effect. Since then, the Israel-Gaza conflict has erupted. You're not managing your balance sheet anticipating World War III, but you're managing your balance sheet, anticipating that you need to be managing your business for a three-year time frame. At least two, but a three-year time frame, not for next quarter, not for just making that month's quota, not just for getting to year-end, Dixon said. That's all for this time. Many thanks for listening. 
And a reminder that all these stories are linked in the description below and form just a small part of Scripps' global coverage last week. Sign in to access all of our content or sign up for a free trial to see what you're missing. Bye for now.